0: There are two main issues going on in our passage of Scripture this morning. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. If, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I encourage you to find that. Two main issues, uh, to put them quite simply. One is the very real struggle to believe that Thomas has. And the second is the very real struggle responsibility of belief that God gives to his followers. Let's look at both of these. First, the struggle to believe, and then the responsibility that comes along with belief. The struggle to believe. So just imagine it. Here are the disciples. They're hiding in a locked room, which is quite a normal thing to do. Rome has just killed Jesus. Because Rome sees Jesus rightly as a political rival. Christianity is political if it is anything. And Rome saw that Jesus was a threat to its values and its politics and its empire. So Rome did what Rome does with all rivals for power. They destroyed him. They killed him in their favorite way. A public, painful, humiliating way crucifixion, and now the disciples knows what come ne- comes next because this is a pattern that Rome has developed for a long time. They find the inner circle. They not, they not only stamp out the leader, they also get the inner circle so that they can eliminate this thing um, both through terror and through um, just killing the leaders. It's hard for a movement to continue. So these guys feel like they're next, so they're hiding, and they lock the door, which is an important thing to do when you're hiding. And suddenly uh, Jesus passes through this locked door. Jesus, whom they saw crucified. Jesus, whom they knew was really dead. Now he's alive again. But one man, one of the followers of Jesus was not there. He was not in the room. His name is Thomas. And so the, the... the disciples of Jesus, when they find Thomas, we don't know when, a day later, later that day, a couple of days later, they tell him, hey, we found Jesus. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place man into his side, I will never believe. So although the disciples kept telling him, Jesus is alive, we saw it, Thomas's response is, I don't know what you guys are drinking, but dead people don't come back from the dead. Now, instead of looking on Thomas with judgment, we should actually look on Thomas and say, good for you. I mean, right? If I came to you and told you Grandma was back, you would say... I don't care what you think, Aubrey. I don't care what you say, Aubrey, until I see grandma with her wrinkles or whatever the defining characteristics of your grandma are, then I will never believe this story you're telling me. He demands physical proof. And what we see here is that in the ancient Near Eastern world, they know what we know. Dead people stay dead. This is just a fundamental fact of humanity. Now, there are some modern critics of Christianity that sometimes like to imagine that the children of the Enlightenment are the first people in history to be shocked by somebody claiming someone has risen from the dead. But this claim, it was not only, it's not only a shock to our worldview, it was just as much a shock to their worldview. That's what we see in Thomas. You don't have to know anything about modern science to get that. He was shocked. He he was so shocked that he refused to believe the people closest to him, which is exactly what Gilbert would do if even his wife came to him and said, Grady Grandma is back from the dead. Gilbert would say, no, unless I see her, I'm going to find some other explanation for what you're saying to me. Now, Thomas gets his evidence. As the story is told here in John's gospel, the resurrected Jesus shows up again through a locked door. Thomas is there. He shows him his wounds. And Thomas gets enough evidence to say, okay, this is the same body. Not just some long-lost twin that has just now showed up. But this is actually him. And then Thomas says in verse 28, John chapter twenty. You are my Lord and my God. And notice Jesus' response. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, it is possible to believe without seeing. But how? Because that's our predicament. Right? I mean, lucky for Thomas, he got to doubt And get evidence of a pretty significant sort. But here Jesus opens the door tantalizingly to the fact that doubters can come to faith without seeing his body. But how? How is that possible? What avenues are available to those of us who are rightly standing on a genuine right to not believe unless there's solid evidence? Because I think Thomas was in a defensible position. And there are many people in our day who also are in defensible positions of standing on their right to not believe without evidence. But what avenues are there? What, what is there available to those of us who do not have access to the actual, physical, living body of Jesus to touch with our own Hands, Well, if you are genuinely interested in evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I think there is one thing in particular about Thomas' experience that can be helpful as you explore Christianity today without access to the physical body of Jesus. And it's this. Let me just push pause here for a moment. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to put my finger on what I think is the biggest challenge we face today in coming to believe. And then when I shift into the second half of the sermon where I talk about the responsibility that comes with belief, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to put my finger on what I think is the biggest challenge to us fulfilling the responsibility of belief today. Okay, so here's the deal with Thomas that I think is so helpful for us. Thomas did not come to believe in Jesus by divorcing reason and faith. And that's our biggest challenge today. He held reason and faith together. He he held them together as two compatible modes of gaining trustworthy knowledge. In other words, we misread Thomas if we make the typical modern enlightenment prejudice mistake, the prejudice in favor of disengaged study as the way to reliable information. We live in this moment in time in which the dominant understanding of reality is that facts are an entirely different thing than beliefs. That facts and beliefs are two separate issues. I'm very sorry, but I'm getting super distracted by by her. So if you can help her calm down or maybe take her out, it'll be good. Thank you. We live in this moment in which the dominant understanding of reality is that facts... And beliefs are separate kinds of things. And this is hard for us today. This makes... Thomas struggled with belief until he saw Jesus. We struggle with belief today... Not so much because we can't see Jesus... But because of this fundamental issue. So what happens today is that on the one hand... You have the hard facts of science. And on the other hand... You have the vague beliefs and opinions of religion. So religion, according to our society today, is unprovable. And science is provable. Through science, our world thinks, you gain objective, solid knowledge. But in the world of faith and religion, our world thinks you get something squishy. You get subjectivity. You get opinion. What's true for you can be true for you, but it might not be true for me. You know, we would never say that about facts. We say that about opinions and beliefs. What I'm saying is that this way of thinking about science and faith, about facts and beliefs, this way of approaching reality in the world... If we are going to flourish as a society, if we are going to flourish as individuals, we have to leave that divorce behind. We have to find a way out of the splitting of fact and belief. Because it's destroying our society on all manner of levels. When you split fact, And morality, you think technology allows you to destroy the earth. And and it has nothing to do with right and wrong. The divorce of fact and opinion is leading to all manner of devastation. Both of the earth and of human lives. What, What I'm saying is that if we're going to flourish... We've got to leave behind the notion that science is hard and real and spirituality is squishy and subjective. And so many people in our society, not just Christians, but many, many people in our society are beginning to recognize that divorce is causing massive problems today. People are beginning to feel the weakness of approaching life as if these are two separate issues people are beginning to sense that human life is multidimensional, and that what we can touch and see and what we can weigh on the scales or calculate in a bank balance this is only one dimension of a rich life aren't we discovering that Aren't we discovering that if you reduce your life to what you can see and feel and taste and touch and put in the bank, if you put all of living into that category, you will live an impoverished life, no matter what your bank account is. That human life is multidimensional. That it's not only about hard scientific facts, but it's also much more than that. That we can have a rich existence only when, we recognize that our universe is not only filled with things, it is filled with meaning. That it is a world charged with significance. And this isn't to say, of course, that we can go back to some pre-modern view of the world. But what we can do is we can push through the decay of modernism. We can push beyond the skepticism of post-modernism. And we can land... Not in a pre-modern naivete, but in something beyond the vacuousness of a culture that has let science determine reality. And one of the most important steps for us to take is to recognize that disengaged study, objective scientific pursuits of truth, only give you certain parts of reality they only open the door to certain aspects of life that disengage study while it is appropriate with regard to penicillin it is inappropriate in my relationship with my wife right? what if I approached my wife disengaged <laughs> do you know what that would do? Would that lead to more accurate knowledge of Janelle? The highest form of knowledge is love. That's the problem. The problem is that modernity has said the highest form of knowledge is the stuff science gives you. It's the hard stuff that you can prove in an experiment and it's repeatable and verifiable. And that's the height of knowledge. And when you stop there, you can be the most educated nation in the world and euthanize an entire race. That's what happens when you divorce knowledge as data from the highest form of knowledge, which is love. And and love cannot be gained by divorcing fact and belief, the objective and the subjective. So for example, what would happen if you approached a relationship with someone else leading with the foot of analysis, calculation, and organization? And you neglect imagination, storytelling, big picture thinking, and intuition. What if you made those in the second seat of your relationship with another person? What if they had to yield to analysis, organization, calculation? Well, this will lead to a person who can never make a commitment in a relationship. This will lead to profound isolation. This will not lead to a real knowledge of the person. It will not lead to the form of knowledge that we call friendship. What is the best way for Kyle to know Melissa? The route of friendship or the route of analysis and calculation? And if the center of Christianity is not a creed but a person, then what is the best path to knowing the truth of Christianity. You see, that's all the difference in the world. Christianity says Jesus is the center. He really rose. He really is a person that at the flaming heart of the universe is a God who has personhood, the qualities of a person. Then what has to be the lead foot in discovering the truth of Christianity? It has to be the lead foot of discovering the truth of a person. Which is imagination. Big picture thinking. Intuition. Storytelling. That's how people get to know each other. If the center of Christianity is Jesus Christ. If the center of the universe is a God who has personhood. Then the way to know Christianity. The way to know if it's true. Is by getting to know Jesus And if you can know him, really know him, then you can know if he's a jerk or not, if he's powerful or not, if he really exists or not. But if he doesn't exist, then you'll pursue a friendship, and you know how to figure out if it's an imaginary friend or not. You figured that out about four years of age, some of you at 10. Yes, there are psychological phenomenon that makes this difficult for people. But you know if you're in that psychological category or not. The people around you know if you're there. And I submit to you that most of you in this room have ample evidence that you know the difference between imaginary friends and not. And so you can test the Christian faith. Listen to John chapter 20 verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If Christianity at its center is a living Jesus Christ, and being a Christian is about believing in him in the same way that believing in Janelle is a thing, right? Believing in Janelle. If Janelle said, Aubrey, you don't believe in me. She's not talking about the data. She's talking about the intimate relationship of trust. And if the center of Christianity is about believing in Jesus in the way we talk about a friends believing in each other, what it says here is that as a result of this relationship, Because the one you're believing in, because the one you're entering into an intimate friendship with, because he is the flaming center of the universe, he is a source of light and life and love and all that is good and true and beautiful, when you enter into a relationship with him, the same thing will happen as when you enter into a relationship with somebody else. Their essence flows into your life. You enter into a relationship with a deeply creative person. It flows into you. It affects you. You you draw upon it. You become a great friend with somebody who's a super good gift giver. You make inch little steps toward being better at giving gifts. That's what friendship does. It opens you up to the essence of the other person if it's a true friendship. Because in true friendship, there's union. And in union, there's influence. This is why there is life when we believe in Jesus. Because we turn to the center of the universe who is life in an intimate friendship and that life flows into us. If that's true, then the path of exploration must include the same types of things you would do if you were exploring a friendship with any person in your life. And so you don't simply think your way into a relationship with Jesus. You live your way into thinking right about Jesus. It's just like that with friendships, right? You don't think your way into knowing somebody well. No, you live your way into thinking them well. This is what's going on here with Thomas. Does the data matter? Yes, absolutely. But put it in second chair. Put it within the framework of love. Just like you do with friendship. Does it matter who Barbara is and if Basil knows Barbara? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does it matter that my wife doesn't like, I don't know, MSG. Sure, don't feed her MSG. But that's not the sum total. The framework is love. This is how relationships work. There is massive evidence for the historical reliability of the central claims of Christianity about Jesus. There is massive evidence for the scientific plausibility Of the claims of Christianity. There is massive evidence for the moral coherence of the Christian view, and I'd love to talk with you about that evidence. And yet, at the end of the day, if you are really investigating Christianity, you are investigating if a person is alive. And this must involve more than analysis, it must involve openness. To a relationship. And so as part of your investigation. Go for it. Try to turn in friendship. Toward Jesus. Open your heart and your imagination. To prayer and worship. And living the Christian life. And let that be a part of your exploration. And notice if you do this. You have the potential of experiencing. Life. Real life. And back in verse 19, notice what it says. On the evening of that day when he shows up, what it says at the end, he looked at these guys and he said, peace, be with you. Show them his hands and his side. And then he said to them again, peace, be with you. And then down in verse 26 when he talks to Thomas, peace, be with you. It's the word shalom, flourishing. So here's a great test. Turn to Jesus in friendship, and if he's real, Peace, shalom, flourishing, life, real life, significance, meaning, gravity, substance. This will flow into your life. And if it doesn't, mass hysteria, groupthink doesn't exist. See what you have to gain? Life, flourishing. Shalom. If you doubt Christianity and if you're willing to explore it to see if it's true, this is the only fair exploration. You have so much to gain. All right. So I've spoken a little bit about the struggle to believe. And I've tried to push back against the biggest challenge we face in our day to coming to believe. Now what I want to do is I want to look at the heavy responsibility that comes along belief and I want to push back against the way in our day we struggle with fulfilling the responsibility of belief. Listen again to verse 21 and 22. Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. If you withhold sins from anyone, they are withheld. Forty times in John's gospel, Jesus is described as the one sent by the Father. Now, he sends those who have received shalom and life. He sends them to carry on his mission, to complete and continue his mission. And it is this mission that is the primary responsibility of those who turn in faith to the resurrected Jesus, right? So we see the struggle of Thomas to come to believe, but we also see in this passage Jesus not only helping us come to him in belief by offering us a real friendship like he did with Thomas, but we also see that he throws back on us when we enter that friendship a responsibility He sends us. In other words, John's gospel is the story of Jesus accomplishing the defeat of death and beginning the work of new creation and then saying to his followers, the church, tag, you're it. Your job is not to accomplish the defeat of death and darkness, but to implement the achievement. I've, I've made. Implementation is our job. Implement the kingdom. And our job as a church is to be an agent of this kingdom, to be an advance runner of the kingdom. Now, that's quite clear in this passage, but what I want to do now is the same thing I did with the struggle to believe. I now want to talk about the struggle to go out. What is the big barrier that the church today is facing in the struggle to move out into the world as true humans. Really alive. Bearers of shalom. Implementing life. Implementing shalom. I think it's this. I think that we've got to rediscover something fundamentally important. About what it means to be a church. And it's this, a church exists in two modes. A church is an institution and an organism. And getting that straight in our mind, I think, is incarnation's biggest challenge to going out into the world. The church exists as an institution and as an organism. And it's through our institutional life and through our life as an organism that we implement the achievement of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. First, as an institution, how does Jesus send our church as an institution? out into the world very simply worship discipleship and evangelism that is the way the institution lives for the king on mission as an institution we worship we disciple and we evangelize as an institution we're called to sum up the praises of the creation to the creator to worship the Creator through word and sacrament, and to do all of this before the face of God, to preach the gospel, to sing praises, to confess our sins, to baptize, to serve the Lord's Supper, and to make disciples. All of this before the face of God. As an institution, we are very, very limited in what we do. We worship, we disciple, and we evangelize. And outside of that, We don't do hardly anything as an institution. But as a church, we also exist as an organism. And it's as an organism that we spread out into all the spheres of society, into all the nooks and crannies of life in this community. This is you. It's the church as an organism. This is you. This is me moving out into society, living in society as a neighbor, as a worker, and as a citizen. It's in in these ways of engaging the world that the Church of the Incarnation engages the city. We engage the city not primarily as an institution doing justice work. As an institution, we engage God in the city by worshiping, discipling, and evangelizing. It's as an organism that we're neighbors, workers, and citizens. Now, this is so important because it's at the confusion of these things that so many churches get off mission. First, look at it this way. It's in our neighborly work, our vocational work, our citizenship work. This is the way that there are 250 points of engagement. Or 500, because none of us wears only one hat. Think about how diffuse and how integrated this room is into this city. And we go out into all of those places. This is important. Not as emissaries of the institutional church. Aaron Cook is not a defense lawyer for incarnation. We have no, I have no authority over Aaron in his vocation. I'm an officer of the institution. So I have authority over the way we worship, disciple, and evangelize. But I don't know nearly enough about Lois' job to to be her boss, to be her supervisor, to be her authority. I, I don't have authority over your parenting. I don't have authority. This church doesn't have authority over the way you work with your neighbor. That's that's not the church's institution's purview. I'm an officer of the institution. Mike is a professor. And he, as a professor, he's not an emissary of the institution. No, that's the wrong way to look at that. And part of what that means is that your work in this world does not flow out of the structure of this church. In other words, you don't need my permission or my expertise or this institution's programs to work for justice, beauty, and renewal. That's what the church's organism does. So one of the things we've got to get much better at as a church is knowing that when you are at your job, you are the church as organism on the front lines of ministry, on the front lines of mission. We make a mistake if we try to put the institution on the front lines. You know who is far better at dealing with crisis pregnancy than a church? AvaCare. What if a church tried to own that? What expertise do we have In organizing a business in health. Now, are there Christians there? Absolutely. The church's organism is doing hard work with crisis pregnancy in this city. Isn't isn't Habitat for Humanity far better at building houses for people than we could be? Do you know what it would take for this institution to take on building houses? Does that mean that our church is not involved in building? No, we are involved. Guild is on the board for Habitat for Humanity. Incarnation as an organism is all over justice and beauty work and renewal work in this city. The church as an institution is not the front lines. It's the medic tent behind the front lines. But it's you in your homes and on your jobs and as citizens you this right now this is the missionary force come back behind the front lines of battle to do what to worship to be equipped for me to sound the kingdom note so that one more week we go for it one more week we enter into the fray when it comes to a church being on mission for the king we've got to learn both of these things institution as organism And the institutional church is really messed up when it takes on those organism issues. And what will happen inevitably is it will sideline worship. It will sideline discipleship. It will sideline evangelism as it becomes one more social justice agency. But if AvaCare made worship the center, it would sideline crisis pregnancy care. So these are separate, but they're integrally related to one another. You see, worship is central, it is foundational. Only through worship can we be sustained. As we enter into the fray, as we enter into our calling from God to move out into the world, to be sent into the world, to live in his good world but broken world, the worship is what connects us to the source in profound ways. It equips us, we evangelize, and this enables us to move out and to sit on boards and to participate in initiatives. So, the struggle to belief faces The modern split of belief and knowledge. The struggle for mission in Harrisonburg faces the split of institution and organism. And if we don't want to end up where many churches have ended up who got a social gospel impulse, we have to learn to do these things in their respective spheres. In really wise ways. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.